Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. This is the day that the Lord has made. And because he's made it, we rejoice and we're glad in it. Is anybody grateful for Jesus this morning? Well, Epiphany, I just want to say I'm so glad for the wonderful opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, your pastor, Pastor Brandon, is one of my dearest friends. Uh, we went back to the days of sharing a small office at Epiphany in Philadelphia. Office was the size of that little cutout, cutout there. And, uh, and he would tell me in a very disrespectful way how much he hated my falsetto. And uh, you couldn't have told me though, Gabe, I could have sworn I was killing it, but he loved to put me in my place. It is a joy to be here with you all this morning, all the way from Chicago. Any Chicago people in the room? All right, it's for y'all. Southsiders, Southside? That's what I'm talking about. Represent Southside. It's good to see you all here. I'm uh, excited to be able to share uh, God's word with you. If you got your Bibles, will you meet me in the book of Psalm or in the Psalms? Psalm 137. When you're there, you could say you're there. Looking, say still looking. Take your time. I look around this room and it's a, it is one more, one more evidence of God's faithfulness. I think about when Pastor Brandon and I shared that office and he would tell me about his dream to plant a church in Brooklyn and to see God and what he has done over these years. It is a phenomenal blessing and we give God praise. Psalm 137, when you're there, say, I'm there. Now I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible in case it reads differently from yours. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And when we remembered Zion, there we hung our lyres on the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us to, for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song on a foreign soil. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill and may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem, destroy it, destroy it. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. Happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. What a tough verse to hear, but bear with me as we spend some time with it. I wanna to speak to you on the subject this morning. Keep it 100, keep it 100. 
Will you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. Lord, this is the day you've made. We rejoice. We're glad in it. And God, we are so grateful to be here one more time. Through danger seen and unseen, you have brought us to this place. And now, God, as I do the best I can to take what I've prepared, I pray that you would take my meager preparation and breathe some Holy Ghost on it. I pray that you would take your word to places I cannot take it, that you would speak clearly and speak indeed. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart, let those things be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer. Lord, it's my prayer that the beauty of your son Jesus would be shown. So Lord, give me precision of speech. Give me concision of thought. Lord God, help me, Lord, to take this where it needs to be taken. It's in Jesus's mighty and matchless name we pray this prayer. If you agree with me this morning, will you please say amen? Amen. amen. Keep it 100. In the church I pastored before going to the place I currently serve, it was my job to not dress like you all are dressed today. I had to put on a suit. And boy, did I love wearing those suits. One day I had just gotten a brand new one. Shoes were shine, brand new tie. And there I stood in the mirror as I snapped my cufflinks in place. And while standing there, you couldn't tell me nothing. Flawless. I was feeling myself that morning, but it wasn't until my youngest son, Ellison, walked in the room that the bubble that was floating me above cloud nine was burst when he looked at me and said, Dada, you're not cool. He says, Dad, you're not cool because you don't have any hair. Radical candor. Radical candor is something that you don't have to teach children. Children generally are honest about what they think or they feel. When they feel it or they think it, they say it. In fact, I got in trouble a lot as a kid because my mother would say what comes up ought not always come out. Radical candor. As children, we feel it, we think it, and we say it. But something happens when we become adults. We come to a place where we realize the world does not care about our feelings. Our tears do not matter the most. And something happens where we go from radical candor to insincerity, where we become masters of masquerades, where we learn how to hide what we truly feel deep within our soul. And I want to surrender to you that that is true even of the people of God. When you go to church, you ask someone how they're doing, their response to you is never a real statement. It's always blessed and highly favored. How do you feel? I feel like the Lord's favor is upon me today, saints. I feel like God, God has just been so good. But the truth of the matter is, while all those things may be true, 
there is something in us that keeps us from being honest about what we feel. It's not just present in church. I want to say it's with you, with God. Some of us, when we go into prayer, we're so busy trying to pray the way we hear everybody else pray that we don't actually say what is true to God. That's what this psalm is. This psalmist is writing or reflecting on something that God has done or that they had gone through in the past. God told them that if they continued on the path of sin, that God would absolutely help them to find out. They got in trouble and they were punished and the Babylonian empire came and took them out of their land, burned down their church, burned down their walls, took all of their riches and took them all into slavery. Now there they are. They are locked away in Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, a city that they believe was impenetrable, a city that many people who, whether they live there or not, saw it as a place of security where the temple, where God caused his spirit to dwell, both are now destroyed. They are devastated by the devastating reality of the city that they come from. There they are in Babylon, weeping. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 9 that God, although they were in captivity, wanted them to still have a witness in the world. Even though they wanted it to end, God would tell them, build houses, have kids, increase, plant crops. And although you hate the Babylonians, pray for them because your welfare is linked up in their welfare. God understood that even while they were there and they wanted to be out of there, God wanted them to be a witness. But how can you witness in a space like that? You see it. The psalmist reflects on how they witnessed this foreign land and saw that it was impossible even for them to sense God. But they came to understand that in their dark moment, they had to be real with God. Contemporaries, my contemporaries, when they read Psalm 117, they, they say to me, this is a psalm that is difficult and God's word cannot be found in it. There are some who believe it ought to be snatched out of the Bible because of that last verse. Last verse is a terrible verse. It's a difficult verse. But this verse is a verse, this psalm is a psalm that is for the key of life. It is a psalm that God gives us to give us words to help us lament about the painful realities we go through. You know what it means to lament, right? To lament means to do what your grandmama told you not to do. You know, your grandmother told you, baby, you ought not ever complain to God. To lament means that you express your real feelings about the real pains of life to a God who is not cold and callous, but a God who cares to hear you. That's exactly what this is. In their painful reality, in their painful moments, they are being honest with God about how they feel. Painful moments are a part of the reality of this life that we live. I don't care how much you pray, how much Bible you know, how, much, how many times a year you go to church. Keep on living and life will punch your air out of your lungs. Life 
has a way of taking you down. That is, that is the painful reality of this existence. And while God may not always pull us away from it, what he does do is he gives you a tool to help you make it. And it is through the form of lamenting. This text is tailored to teach us that God uses painful moments as spaces for us to express our raw feelings to him. God is not caught up, nor is he moved by the fake prayers that we pray. The ones where we yank words from deacon so-and-so or reverend so-and-so and etch them in a sentence. God is moved when we actually tell him what we feel about the things we experience in life. You see it in this text. As you look at these people, I want you to first note their honest expression. You see it in verses 1 to 4. They compared God's better with their present reality of pain. Here you find the people are weeping. They are weeping because they have been utterly defeated by a strong enemy. Their tears are not fake. They are real. They're, they sit on a tree-lined canal and they say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? This is beyond mere homesickness. When they sit on these banks, they remember better times. Verse 1 tells us they remember Zion. They think about their festivals and how they made their way to Jerusalem to go to church and to celebrate God. They think about the different things that God had done in their path. They think about how God had freed them from their oppressor, Egypt, that when no one could get them free, God broke the back of Pharaoh and set them free. They think about how when they were standing before the Red Sea, God caused something that was a scientific impossibility to happen when he parted the waters and they crossed through on dry land. They think about the moments when they celebrated God in the wilderness, when they didn't have food and didn't know where their next meal was going to come from, and God caused manna to rain down from heaven. They celebrated God in these festivals, and they think about those better days. And they realize where they are now. They're standing there and their collective memory is reminding them that where they are is worse than where they've come from. Jerusalem, that strong city, is now destroyed. The temple where God's presence was is now leveled. They sang about the victorious power of God, but now they are sitting in the feeling like it feels like God has lost the fight. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been anywhere in your life where it felt like God lost the fight? Yes, I know that God does not lose the fight. Yes, I know that God has all power in his hands. Yes, I know that God is victorious, but truth be told, there are moments in your life where you pray for something and don't get what you ask for. There are moments in life where you hope for something and don't get what you hope for. There are moments when your dreams began to feel like they are deferred and they blow up like a heavy load. There are moments in life where your soul hurts, where your weeping comes from a deep place, where disappointment is your bedfellow. It is the place where it feels like God has lost. I wish I had like four people in the room who can be honest for four seconds to say, I know what it feels like when it feels like God lost. I know he ain't lose, but it feels like it. That's, that's where they are. They are feeling like God, the victorious one, has lost the battle and closed his eyes. And there 
to make matters worse. While they're looking in their past, they see who's standing around. The Babylonians are standing around cracking jokes on them. Sing to us one of your songs you used to sing in church. Isn't that what oppressors do? Oppressors push you down and tell you to dance. They enslave you and trivialize your soul and spiritual music. They withhold your voting rights and tell you to Watusi twerk or twist on TikTok for their benefit. They lock you in ghettos and tell you to make soul music and steal the profits. They, they underfund your schools and tell you to shoot the hoops and run that ball. They snatch away your opportunity, your equal opportunity for education and tell you to inoculate yourself with a fake joy in this uncertain world. Become a minstrel show. Step it, fetch it, act like you enjoy it. Dance for us until we tell you not to dance no more. They stood back and said, no, we won't do it. While you tell us to step and fetch, we, we're going to hang our harps on the poplar tree. They refuse to say, we won't allow you to trivialize and find entertainment in our pain. They refuse to act like they had joy in a situation that was full of pain. Where do you see them, though? They sit and they weep. Weeping ain't just tears. Weeping comes from the depth of your soul. Anybody who's ever had to bury a baby knows what it means to weep. Anyone who's ever had to say goodbye to a loved one knows what it means to weep. Anyone who has ever had to grieve the loss of something knows what it means to weep. It is when you no longer have tears that fall from your eye. You are staring at salty dust lines on your face as your soul cries out for help. That's that's where you see them weeping and crying and honest before God. Here's the reality. Life hits you and it takes from you. And the reality is it hurts. When we experience pain, it hurts. When someone loves you and leaves you, it hurts. When dreams are dashed or altered, it hurts. When your body gets sick, it hurts hurts when you suffer loss it hurts but what do we do in our culture we act like we don't feel it when pain hits us we fake it until we make it we we ignore the pain we medicate it with substance or pleasure we numb ourselves we busy ourselves with work we we shoot we shout ourselves into oblivion when the reality is the pain that we experience does not leave if you're ever gonna learn to keep it 100 with god you've got to learn to be honest about the pains you experience you you don't have to teach a kid to cry Kids fall, hit their head on the table, skin their knee on the ground. You don't have to say, now, son, this is how you scream. Now, daughter, this is how you holler. They hit their head, they hurt themselves, and they cry. Why? Because they know that the parent who they call to cares about them. You have a God who is not capricious and standoffish, who has not set time in motion and left you by yourself, but you have a God who cares so much that he wrapped his son Jesus in human skin clothes and died for you. You have a God who delights in you and wants to hear you share your real feelings with him. God 
is a God who the psalmist says knows your tears so well that he bottles them up. God is a God who hears the cries of his people and he inclines his ears to them. Why do you act like God don't care what you feel? God wants to hear you tell him. Part, part of keeping it real with God is learning to be honest about what we feel before the Lord. I want you to note it. There was an honest expression, but there was a committed fixation. You see it in verses five to six. They say, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skills. In other words, I refuse to work. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, I will not worship. If I don't exalt you, Jerusalem, my greatest joy. This, this isn't nostalgia for yesterday, or, nor is it a memorial of something long gone. This is a fixation on a city and something more. But what can a desolate city do? Jerusalem, as I said earlier, is the city of God. It is where God dwelt. It was the place that was absolutely holy, that whenever they were far away from it, they would bow their knee and look towards it and pray to God because God was there. This is the reason why the psalmist says in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. How I long and yearn for your courts, Lord. This is the reason why Psalm 121, when they think about going to Jerusalem, they say, I lift my eyes to the hills because where does my help come from? It comes not from the city, but from the Lord. This is why Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord because in keeping their eyes fixed on Jerusalem and keeping Jerusalem on the forefront of their mind, they are indirectly fixating on the God of the city. They said, although life hurts, although I keep on going through what I'm going through, I commit to move forward by keeping my eyes fixated on you, Lord. That's a stubborn fixation. Jacob understood that. Jacob understood what it meant to stubbornly hold on to God when he was in the wilderness and a man begins to wrestle him, he knows deep within his knower that that man ain't just any man. That there is something unique about this man because this man got endurance to go all night. As Joseph, J Jacob wrestles with this man, this man says, let me go. And Jacob so stubbornly says, I won't let you go until you bless me. It is a serious fixation on God to say, if I'm going to keep on moving forward, guess what? I'm going to keep my eyes looking to you, Lord. I used to run. Used to is the operative word. <laughs> Something happens when you start to stare at 40. Those of you who are not there, rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ that you are not there. Something happens when 40 becomes a reality. I ain't 40 yet, but it's almost there. Your body reminds you you ain't 20 nothing. There was a time when Gabe was with me here in the city, and we decided to go for a run on three hours of sleep. I know. A shot of espresso gave us what we need. I said we wasn't almost 40. We took this run, and this one mile that I promised him turned into nine miles. 
I was serious about that thing. One of the first things I learned in running is you don't get far in running by looking at the ground you're walking on. Nor do you move forward by staring at what's around you in nature. The only thing that gives you what you need to keep moving forward is to keep your eyes fixed on what's in front of you. I'm telling you something, beloved, that when life hits you, when life feels hard, when life takes you for a surprise, the only way you move forward is not looking to the left or right of what your friends are saying. It's not looking to your own opinion. It's not leaning to your own understanding, but it's saying, God, I will fix my eyes on you, Jesus, because you are the author and the finisher of my faith who for the joy set before you endured the cross despising shame and guess what you were done and you sat next to God when you fixate on him you will reap in due season if you faint not that says Lord I might be going through and I may not understand what I'm going through but I'll keep my eyes on you I might be waiting on you to answer some prayers that you have not answered the way I wanted to but I'll keep my eyes on you. Yes, I might be crying myself to sleep at night, but I'll keep my eyes on you, Lord. I'm going to keep on coming after you even when I don't feel it because I got to move forward. You see an honest expression of pain, but you see a commitment to be fixated on the Lord. But in his last piece, verses 7 to 9, you see a passionate plea for payback. As I read this, I could almost hear James Brown singing it, get the get back. The psalmist in verse 7 recounts to the Lord how the Edomites rejoiced at their downfall. They stood around and said, destroy that city, burn it all the way down. As they tried to escape when the Babylonians were circling the city, it was the Edomites that tricked on them. The Edomites said, there they go. The Edomites did everything they could do to keep them from running away. Lord, remember what they've done to us. But don't stop there, Lord. Remember the people who put us in the situation we're in. Don't forget the Babylonians. God, you know exactly what they did, how, how they came in and they plundered the temple, how they took our money and our resources, how they burned your temple down, how they snatched us into slavery against our will. Remember them, Lord. In fact, verse 8 and 9 says, happy is the one who takes their little ones and dashes them against the rocks. God, pay them back so bad that the Babylonians don't even get to have future kids. People struggle with that verse. Because it goes against our Pollyannish notion of Christianity. It goes against this reality that God actually cares about what you feel. These are real words. These are shocking and gruesome words. But guess what? These are grown-up words. Jesus tells you to love your neighbor, but I guarantee you when that person cheated on you, you didn't say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious. May he grant you peace. I, I guarantee you, when your friends betrayed you, you didn't say, God bless you. I love you so much. When, when, when someone stepped and they hurt your heart, you, you didn't say, hey, come hurt my heart again. In fact, some of you, if you're honest today, you had colorful words. You had words 
that you would feel guilty for dropping in this room. You had words. Some of you didn't just have words. You had hands. You, you, some of you backslid hard when, when it happened. You, you caught yourself in the middle of swinging blows. These are real words from people who experience real pain. These are words from folks who understand the depth of despair. These are words of people who understand what it means to hurt when life ain't fair. Mamie Till understood these words. When her baby boy was snatched out of the Tallahassee River and she watched as they couldn't even recognize his face, she understood these words. As she watched the people on trial not even look like they're going to face a day in jail. Mamie Till understood these words, but Coretta understood these words. When her husband was nothing but a person who loved and cared about reconciliation and cared about justice, when he was snuffed away from her and her baby, she understood what it felt like to lose her baby daddy, and she understood those words. Trayvon's mama understood those words. George Floyd understood those words. People who have experienced pain understood those words. Addie Mae Collins understood those words. Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, Carol Denise McNair of the 16th Street bombing, church bombing understood those words. These are words of people who experience real pain but who express it to a real God. Walter Brueggemann helps us understand these when he says, when you look at Psalm 137, you you notice that these are not soft words, but they are the voice of seasoned religion, which knows profoundly what it costs to beat off despair. It is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. Well, if that didn't get you, maybe this will get you. Some of you, you talk to a therapist on a regular basis. You've been able to sit in front of that person and you've been able to tell that person not the fake stuff, but the real stuff. You've been able to confess things to that person, but you've also been able to tell that therapist stuff that actually hurts. Therapists are not interested in you putting up a facade. You would waste your money to do it. So they ask you deeper questions to expose deeper truth. Why? Because they understand that when you tell them what it really is, there is a catharsis in you telling the truth about what you feel. So the therapist wants you to express the real pain in the moment, the honor, honesty about bitterness with people. The therapist merely listens as a sounding board to help you recognize, vocalize, and analyze your pain. And there's healing there. But there's a difference between vocalizing your pain to someone who merely hears you. There's another in vocalizing your pain to someone who cares for you. This is what the psalmist is saying. In order for you to keep it 100, you got to be able to take your passionate pleas to the Lord in prayer. Because when you are talking to God, you are not talking to a God who is fragile and who will break because you said what you think. My Bible reads that he knows your thoughts from afar, which means before you even think the thought, God sees it coming into your head. So when you stand before him and you are uttering words that are not real, God 
knows what you feel. And God don't walk away and cry because you say what you think. God is strong enough to carry your bitterness. God is kind enough to carry your anger. God is warm enough to grab you in the midst of your coldness. God is able to hold you in your anger. It's better for you to express your anger to him than to lose your job and go off on your co-worker. It's better for you to express your raw hatred about other people to him than it is for you to act in retribution on your behalf. When you take your feelings to God, God is able to hear you. When it feels like evil wins, take it to the Lord in prayer. When it feels like sickness prevails, Take it to the Lord in prayer. When you're hurting and your soul is bleeding, take it to the Lord in prayer because God wants to hear your honest plea. And I remember when I was a kid, I was riding my bike down the street. There was a group of girls sitting across the street on the porch. And you couldn't have told me in that moment that I wasn't cool because I was, my son was wrong. <laughs> While riding this bike, I was too busy flossing that I didn't see the crack. Pulled one hand off the bike, you know, swore I was cool. You know, you was really cool if you took both hands off the bike. Both hands off the bike, you know, rubbing my used to be 360s. And... <laughs> Suddenly I hit that crack. When I hit that crack, I went off that bike. I hit my knee so hard on the ground that the white meat was showing. You know that white meat when the blood hesitates? <laughs> when all you see is whiteness and the blood look like it wanna show? You don't wanna scream yet? It was that kind of pain. And I'm sitting there and finally when the blood finished hesitating, I saw it begin to make its way out of my knee and with that blood pouring came a scream from the depth of my soul, mommy. There I was 13 years old down the street from the house screaming to my mother. While I understood that my earthly mother would hear me and answer, you have a heavenly father who inclines his ear to you when you cry out to him in pain, you have a God who is not afraid of your crying. You have a God who is not afraid of your tears. You have a God who cares about your pain. Why? Because he knows your pain. Why? Because you got a friend in Jesus. Jesus who stepped into time and space and put on human skin clothes and walked this painful existence called life, who understood what it meant to be misunderstood, who understood what it meant to be victimized, brutalized, criminalized, and thrown aside. Jesus, who took up a cross that was not his, a cross that was mine, a cross that was yours, that had your fingerprints all around it, that cross. Jesus, as he took upon that cross on his back, the old preacher would say, they whipped him all night long. They tore open his back so that you could have peace. They punched him in the face so that you could have a moment of peace. And 
and there as they hung your Savior Jesus, your sin came to his shoulder. Your grief came to his back. Your depression fell upon his chest. Your hopelessness weighed down upon him as he fought hard to be able to breathe. And Jesus did not hang there and take a nap on a Friday, but he did die. On that cross, Jesus hung his head and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back as Jesus bled and died for you. And they took him and put him in a borrowed tomb, wrapped him up and pushed him down there. And Jesus sat in that tomb on a Friday night. Saturday came and tears still fell from people's eyes as Jesus was there through Saturday night. But if you are familiar with the Easter story, it was early on a Sunday morning that Jesus got up from a grave. He did not stay dead, but death stood up and smiled at him. And Jesus mollywopped death in the face and said, death, where is your sting? Death. Where is your victory? Jesus got up and he punched a hole into death. And because Jesus lives, you got a friend in Jesus. Because Jesus lives, one day that Jesus is going to come back. Because Jesus lives, one day he's going to bend the arc of history towards justice. That Jesus, who you got a friend in, one day he's coming back and all wrongs will be righted. All Wicked ways will be made straight. Sickness won't take you no more. Death won't destroy you no more. Diabetes won't take you. Bullets won't strike you. Friends won't betray you because Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eye. You got a friend in Jesus who understood what it meant to live and to die. And because Jesus got up, you got a friend who wants to hear your concerns. Tell him all about your trouble. He will hear your faintest cry. And because Jesus is not asleep, guess what? He will answer you by and by. You've got a friend in Jesus. Tell him all about your trouble. Tell him all about your pain. Oh, what peace. Oh, what peace. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everything ain't some things. Everything ain't the best things. Everything ain't the things that make you praise. But everything are the things that make you cry. Everything are the things that keep you up all night. Everything are your doubts. Everything is your fear. Everything is your worry. Everything is your anxiety. Everything is your pain. And everything is your tears. And God is able to take your everything. Hold your everything and bless you with something else. God will use your painful spaces to allow there to be space for you to be real with him. God is not interested in you maintaining the facade. He's not interested in you acting like you got it all together. He's not interested in you acting like life ain't done what it's done. God is interested in you. God is interested in the depth of who you are. He wants to get into the spaces that you don't want to let him in. 
that he might apply the balm of Gilead to the brokenness of your soul. God, God is able because he cares for your pain. So when you go through, when you cannot make sense of why, when the pain is too intense, know that God is letting that be a space for you to have words to express realness to him. God in heaven, we thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord, that you love us so much. Firstly, Jesus, that you would come down into the muck and mire of our existence. You love us enough that you are Emmanuel. God is with us. You never leave us, nor do you forsake us. So God, help us in life's painful moments to not hide our feelings from you. You see them, but let us feel the peace that comes from expressing the realness of our pain to you. It's in Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen. As the praise team makes its way forward, let's prepare our hearts for communion.